do we teach non-country kids about the countryside? Help is at hand from the CLA. The uh, activities that have been put together for the students are really about getting them to become familiar with the whole concept of the code really and what it means and um, the sort of advice which it gives really. And although crop doctor Sean Sparling is away enjoying a well-earned break, he's on the soapbox with some thoughts on food and the environment that will definitely strike a chord. In 1970, we were environmentally friendly, but... We were all yearning for modernity and improvement. And now we've got that modernity, we're all yearning to get back to 1970. And it'll always be the case. Plus an update on the harvest, which continues apace, potatoes, the markets and the weather for the week to come. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Good morning, I am that Steve Orchard. Hope you're well, hope it's been a good week on farm. Following on from the release of the biggest combine recently, John Deere has unveiled the biggest trailer sprayer the firm has produced with a capacity of 7,500 litres. It'll be available next year and will be coupled with technology to speed up filling times as well as improving spray application and accuracy. Farmers in England have been granted a temporary reprieve from rules preventing the autumn spreading of slurry and manure on some land. The Environment Agency will not take enforcement action provided there's no pollution risk and they informed the agency. This is intended to give farmers time to adjust to Rule 1 of the Farming Rules for Water, which have been around for three years, but industry awareness of them is low. The rules can be found on the gov.uk website. And a reminder, you only have until Wednesday the 11th to respond to DEFRA's consultation on the Lump Sum Farming Exit Scheme. Again, details are available online at consult.defra.gov.uk. And congratulations to Oxfordshire farmer Stuart Connor, who this week sheared 872 wool lambs in nine hours at Trifank Farm in Cornwall. That's averaging almost 97 lambs an hour, or about 37 seconds of fleece. We'll talk more about fleeces and the current low prices and a possible Lincolnshire solution on next week's farming programme. We're well into the potato harvest. Let's get a quick update from Colin Jackson at PJP Potatoes at Fursby. Morning, Colin. Yeah, morning, Steve. Things all right with you? Nice and busy? Busy on our food service side, busy with the coastal trade, which is also helping the uh, the fish and chip trade up the coast. Um, so uh, so that's good. Um, a bit slower inland, if I'm being honest. So a bit of a lack of demand from the uh, the Midlands and those areas for, for spuds at the moment. But uh, as I say, the coasts are, are really going for it. Good, good. And how's the crop in the field? The crop is still looking very good. I mean, it's a little bit variable depending on the quality of seed, it seems, because it was a bit of a tough start to the growing season. Um, some once-grown crops and, uh, and perhaps not such good quality seed um, have, have had a bit of a tougher time. But it's been one of those years when, uh, when good quality seed has certainly paid for itself and uh, we're seeing some goodish yields in the fields now as they're, uh, as they're being harvested. OK, and price-wise, any indications yet? Yeah, prices have been under pressure. Having said that, you know, they have hold, held on relatively well. I mean, locally, we're st- still able to pay um, sort of 150 up towards £200, pounds, um, depending on variety and qualities, um, which is a better price than we were this time last year. We always, at this time of year, come under pressure from the, the West Country, you know, Shropshire, Cheshire, places like that, where they haven't got storage facilities and they tend to load heavily almost independent of what the what the market requires so they they decide that 
they've got a, a calendar in which they need to get their fields cleared by so they're going to lift you know a certain tonnage a day come what may um, so that does put the market under pressure, particularly at times like now when you know the, the trade in the Midlands and what have you is relatively slow, and disease-wise things look relatively good as well. There, there are one or two varieties. Picasso is one, for instance, that has been affected with those early cold mornings and what have you, and so we're seeing quite a lot of growth cracking in uh, in Picasso. But um, uh, more generally, things, as I say, are looking pretty good. Jolly good. All right, Colin. Thanks for the update. Thank you. Now, Sean Sparley may be on his summer holiday, so no agronomy this week, but we've given him the farming programme soapbox to have his say on food and the environment. Now, we've spoken recently about the Dimbleby report, food standards, the effects of Brexit and COVID on what we do. So, Sean, what say you? Yes, good morning, Steve. It's a funny old world we live in, isn't it? You know, we talk of becoming more environmentally friendly, and unfortunately... A side effect of progress and evolution is that things are made easier for us. Not necessarily better, with hindsight, but I'm talking about our collective state of mind rather than our particular industry. And people naturally strive to evolve and improve their lot and the way things are done. And that drive for progress illustrates the reality of the consequences of those moves and those steps. And going into a biogradable non-plastic bale wrap, for example absolutely laudable and very very timely but to suggest as i've heard suggested on various news programs that those of us of a certain age are the problem is infuriating because in 30 years um the people who are 15 year olds today who are telling us we are the certain age who are the problem are going to be told that they're the problem and so on and so on and that's how it's always been we cannot stand still had we stood still in 1970 when baler band was made of sisal or hemp but definitely not plastic when carrier bags were unheard of you had paper bags or cardboard boxes um you know where you bought fruit and vegetables we bought them loose you took a basket to carry them home where buying bottles of water was the most ridiculous idea because we all had a tap in our house why would you want to buy water where you know we made ice in in the freezer we didn't buy it in bags and carry it home fruit and veg were all wonky and misshapen no one cared you know we took pot bottles back for 10p ago and they were refilled and recycled milk bottles were refilled we didn't have plastic containers full of milk that we threw away you bought one telly every 30 years and you got three channels in black and white if you were lucky i'm just saying that in 1970 we were environmentally friendly but we were all yearning for modernity and improvements. And now we've got that modernity, we're all yearning to get back to 1970. And it'll always be the case. People in the future will always yearn back to a better time in the past. But in 1970, there were 55.5 million people living in the UK. Ten years later, in 1980, it was 56 million. 1990, 57 million. 2000, 58 and three quarter million. 2010, 62 and a half million. So the, the population between 1970 and 2010, over 40 years, went up 8 million. Since 2010, in the last 11 years, it's gone up another 6.5 million. Now, we're feeding 14.5 million more mouths than we were in 1970. More people means more houses, more schools, more shops, more hospitals, roads, businesses, more tarmac, more concrete, and way more demand on the land. 
And that means more flooding, more of those associated issues we see with this, building on land that should be growing crops, not to mention the need of more water, more fuel, more electricity, and on and on and on it goes. And we've also, of course, don't forget, just left the EU. So it's far more important than ever for us to feed ourselves. We can't rely on our now alienated neighbours to feed us. We've got 18.2 million hectares of agricultural land in the UK, but only 27% of that, 4,667,000 hectares, is capable of growing arable food crops for us. We have to increase our self-sufficiency. We're currently around 62%. We've got to get that up to 80 or even more. And advances in science and technology and plant breeding and all of the things that we're doing in agriculture today, that means we can feed that additional 14.5 million more mouths plus the 56 million we already had in 1970. So as 68 million people living here in the UK that we know of, I mean, there may well be plenty more than that, but on the census, around 68 million people have relative food security. I know there's plenty of politics poverty in the population and food banks are now absolutely vital to many many people and I'll tell you now if I could get rid of anything in this country it would be the need for food banks in a modern UK in the 21st century the government should be striving to ensure there is plenty of food for everybody and they can do that by supporting food production and supporting farmers you know reading Henry Dimbleby's food report the most important word in that title is food. People should never lose sight of the fact that if farming is damaged or compromised by weather events or climate shift, climate change, political ignorance or even political interference, to shore up popular votes, then our food security in the UK is compromised too. If we put the farmers who are the businesses growing our food at risk, we really are in some sort of mess. And when shelves and bellies are absolutely full like they are in these times, it's very easy to criticise and protest about changing how our food is produced. And it's very easy to wish for this utopian world where simplicity is the key and where the production standards and methods of 50-odd years ago are lauded as an ideological template for today. It really doesn't work like that. The fact of the matter is, it's not industry, or air travel, or business, or cars, or farming, or anything else that's the problem. We have to face the fact that it's seven and a half billion people all wanting something better. That is the issue. It's us. So we need to save the planet we live on and work out how to make sure that the problem, which is seven and a half billion of us, you know, wanting to live in a disposable society where it's always someone else's fault, we have to address that. 30% of all the food we produce is discarded because it's wonky or ugly and doesn't suit the supermarkets. I think that would probably be the best place to start and breathe hope you're enjoying your holiday sean sean sparling's back in three weeks with agronomy advice as we move into the next season so how do children who are not from the country learn about the ways of the countryside how can we teach them about what we do how farms work where their food comes from and how it gets onto their plate well it's an age-old problem but the cla is focusing on teaching the teachers and making it easier for them to teach the children alison provis from the cla joins us to explain alison good morning 
Morning. The CLA are launching a new resource pack for educators to teach children a bit about the countryside. I know that's probably simplifying it a great deal, but do you want to tell us a little bit about this resource pack? Yeah, of course. So uh, obviously with schools breaking up recently, we're expecting more visitors to come to the countryside, uh, which is great news, you know, excellent. We'd love to welcome them, absolutely. And we just thought, having written to Gavin Williamson last year, we identified a gap in the curriculum, really, on educating the younger generation on the countryside and how to behave and how to treat it and all that sort of thing. Obviously, with COVID, we know that, again, uh, people have been out in the countryside and benefiting from um, all the health benefits of that, you know, mentally and physically, and had, you know, many more visitors. So the Countryside Code was refreshed off the back of that back in uh, April this year. So we got together with LEAF and we've created these education packs that, as you say, youth groups can download. So they're for teachers. There's a lesson plan in there and activities that you can download. Uh, but it's also for other youth groups. So, uh, you know, brownies and beavers and, and, you know, people like that as well. So um, it's available on our website for, for anybody to, to download. Great. And what is this actually teaching them? You say there's the countryside code. Is it specific yep. bits of the countryside or are we going through the whole thing or just what to expect when you're out there in the country? A bit of all of that, really. It's about the countryside code in its entirety and what it means. And the uh, activities that have been put together for the students are really about getting them to become familiar with the whole concept of the code, really, and what it means and um, the sort of advice which it gives, really. So, for example, there's a a way marker activity in there to um, identify the different colours of way markers and then matching them up to what they mean, for example, and what you can and can't do on them. There's a really interesting activity, uh, which I thought was really um, really cool. It's soil investigation activity where you can pick up a clump of soil and depending on the shape that you can make from it, as you work through the activity, it tells you um, sort of what type of soil uh, you have and what you're looking at, uh, which is really interesting. And there's also another activity around sky lanterns, which as we know can be a really big, really big problem for the uh, rural community. Mm. But that activity sort of includes different uh, points of view, so some uh, sort of commentary from uh, the fire service, uh, obviously a farmer as well, and ecologists and, and, and people like that to really illustrate the impacts that sky lanterns have on the rural community, basically, uh, if, if they're released. So it's it's teaching children about the whole code, really, how to respect it, the behaviour that you know you should uh, follow when you're in the countryside, um, taking a litter home, keep dogs on leads and bag it and bin it and all the rest of it, sticking to paths and things like that. But in a, obviously, you know, catering for that young generation in a, in, in a very engaging, interactive, uh, fun way. Because I guess if people are coming from towns and cities, and I don't mean this to be disparaging, maybe they just don't simply understand that the countryside, for the most part, is a working environment, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, certainly. So th- that, that that is exactly it. It is a place for recreation and leisure and all the rest of it, which, you know, we, we all love to do. But fundamentally, it is also a working environment, as you say, especially this time of year with, you know, harvest, we've got combines and all big, you know, big machine on the roads and things like that. So it's really about sort of, you know, making sure that people come out and enjoy it because this most definitely isn't about please don't come. Absolutely opposite. Please do come. We'd, we'd love to see you. But it's just about making sure that it's, uh, you know, done in a responsible and safe way for everybody to visit from the people that are working there but also the people that are visiting just making sure that they are being responsible and safe whilst they visit and what age of children is this aimed at it's primary school children really uh, is, is the age group um, but in activities um, you can alter to suit whatever age group you're aiming at really um, yeah it's available to download on our website 
Okay, and that website address would be? It's cla.org.uk, and then in the top there's a search bar, and if you just type in there, Countryside Code Education Pack, the links for it should come up. Alternatively, uh, please do contact us at the regional office, and we'd be very happy to send the links to you. All right, Alison, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Steve. Much activity in the fields of Lincolnshire and Newark, indeed the whole country at the moment, as the harvest progresses apace, or not. Andrew Ward in Lednam, you're not quite there yet, are you? We haven't started harvest here yet. We don't grow winter barley and we are currently in year two of a three-year rest or holiday from oilseed rape due to diminishing returns the last few years. I think that was caused by flea beetle attack and probably growing the crop in too tight a rotation. So when we bring that back, we're going to be growing it in a one year in six or seven rotation. So that should be better. So the crops to get going with harvest next week will be a toss-up between winter wheat or spring oats. The oats are a naked variety. We're going on a contract, so there's no husk on the outside of those, and they look really well, so I'm looking forward to getting stuck into those. The main use for that crop is animal feed or pet food um, and dog food as well. The other crop that we might get into next week is some winter wheats, on the heavier land and I must say they have got a lot of potential I think this year so we'll see how we get on with uh, with those Um, varieties on that we're growing is skyscraper and shabras they're both uh, feed wheats and uh, due to our our blackgrass policy they weren't planted very early last autumn but uh, they are looking really well with the weather we've been having but it's just a bit of an unknown because I'm just a bit concerned we haven't had enough sun and, uh, and um, temperature to, to ripen them, but we'll see. And then the other crops we've got are spring beans, which will be the last to harvest, and they're looking good, but they're a long way off. Um, we've also got some spring barley, which is on a malting contract, and that will go to Coors Brewery at Burton-on-Trent, and that will be brewed into Carling Lager and Grolsch Lager as well. So that's always useful to supply those markets. And the other crop we're growing is spring wheat, which um, is for seed, some of it, and that's on a contract, and that's a variety called Bilepi, which is a bit of a cross between a winter and a spring variety, so it can be planted at um, late autumn or well into the spring throughout the winter and again that looks well it's after sugar beet on our on our light lands and then the last crop i've just mentioned is sugar beet um it has had one insecticide uh, to combat the virus yellows in uh, the aphid carrying ones and so that's looking looking good this year whereas last year obviously we had an extremely um, difficult harvest And then, of course, lastly, this last week, we've been taking part in Farm 24, hashtag Farm 24, which is an initiative started by Farmers Guardian, which promotes food, farming and the environment and wildlife in the UK. So a fantastic initiative to follow. Thanks, Andrew. If you'd like to update me on how the harvest is going with you, get in touch, tweet at Farming Show or email farming at linksfm.co.uk. And yes, another successful 24 hours in farming concluded on Friday morning. Great to see so many different and diverse organisations getting involved, posting and tweeting photos, comments and videos. And you can see them all by using the hashtag Farm24. Well done, Farmers Guardian and Morrison's and everyone involved in backing British farming.
Time to see how the markets have performed this week with Openfield's Kit Dickinson. Morning, Kit. Well, good morning, Steve. Wheat has developed its own story, which, until recently, been dominated by the potential of large reductions in global maize production prospects. Drought in the US, Canadian spring wheat areas, is expected to reduce yields by 35%, with many crops expected to ensile or abandoned altogether as drought continues. Russian wheat production estimates have been cut as a result of a 1.2 million hectare cut in the winter wheat area, higher winter kill and disappointing early yields, which are expected to deteriorate as the harvest progresses further into the spring wheat areas. Analysts are now talking about 75 to 77 million metric tonnes against the USDA's 85 million metric tonnes. Kazakhstan wheat areas are also suffering drought conditions, which has prompted analysts to drop their production ideas to 11 million metric tonnes. Again, the USDA is up at 13 million metric tonnes, although this may be offset by better yields in the Ukraine. Torrential rain and flooding in Europe, particularly in Germany and France, is causing quality and yield concerns. Whilst optimism that the UK crop could be 15 million metric tonnes plus will depend on yield, as the AHDB farm survey estimate, the area is 1.742 million hectares, which was below the trade estimates. EU Black Sea production, Romania, Bulgaria, has seen an increase of 2.5 million metric tonnes, combined from earlier forecasts. Maize prices have been reactive to the US weather forecast, which continue to demonstrate an east-west split. Ideas that yield in the east, which has received an abundance of rain, will compensate for the extended drought in the west, appear fanciful, which will make it difficult to attain the USDA's record yield prospects, with early crop condition reports showing further declines. The USDA's global wheat and maize supply and demand estimates require some major surgery to more accurately reflect the reductions, with overall global wheat production estimates likely to be down 15 million metric tonnes plus from their July forecast. Going forward, consumers need to extend their cover. Global stocks of wheat and maize are tightening and farmers will be strong sellers once they have satisfied their harvest movement. Cash needs, which should underpin prices. Looking at barley this week, a few good days have seen progress with winter barley harvest. The north is some way behind the south, as we would expect. Varied results across the board have seen molsters adjust their specification to capture as much usable barley as possible, with screenings and retentions the main issues. Some more early cut spring barleys have been seen and these samples suggest some good yields and low nitrogens. However, these are early results. This could change after the weather this weekend. Further afield, Denmark has now started its spring barley harvest with early results looking promising. The French and German crops remain mixed following the heavy rain and destructive weather patterns seen over there. Many growers are looking to get spring barley cut and in the barn before the marketing. However, with values tracking gains in feed premiums, they remain good. Please speak to your Openfield Farm Business Manager for the latest updates on spring barley premiums and feed bases. Looking at Aussie grape, as the UK harvest progresses, albeit slowly, UK values have seen the domestic crush follow Matif futures, but maintain a keenness to keep seed moving to mills as opposed to into stores as it becomes available. Canadian canola prices have also slid early in the week with even further reductions in their production prospects. The EU production numbers are debated at present and some seeing a reduction with others as they are going to be unchanged. Either way, another large import year is required from Canada, the Ukraine or indeed Australia. So moving on to prices this week, feed wheat is 173 to 175 for August, November 178 to 182, February 183 to 185 and May 186 to 188. Milling wheat premiums are circa £20. Feed barley for August is 152 to 154, November 156 to 158, 
February 159 to 161, and May 162 to 164. Malting premiums are circa 25 to 30 pounds. Oil seed rate for August is 440 to 443, November 450 to 453, February 453 to 456, and May 456 to 459. Thanks as ever. Kit Dickinson from Open Field. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. Just light rain for most of the week. Mostly light winds too, although they do get a bit brisk today with the low pressure hanging around for a little longer. Some sunshine slightly this afternoon. Wind from the southwest in the mid-teens and highs around 20 Celsius. Monday sees the low pressure ease and winds calming into single figures, mostly from the southwest for the next few days. A little light rain around, but mostly dry with patchy sunshine, highs staying around 20. A breezier end to the week with southerly winds getting into the 20s and gusting into the upper 30s MPH. Quite a bit of rain is forecast for Friday. Well, another week gone. They fly by this time of year, don't they? Next week, I'll be talking with Caroline Drummond, MBE, the chief exec of LEAF, to discuss their work and visions for the future as they seek to link the environment and farming. Plus, of course, loads more of the week in agriculture. I'm Steve Orchard. Until then, have a good week on farm.